Hi, I'm Bernard Nomberg with the Nomberg Law Firm in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you for stopping by the Nomberg Law Live podcast. Each week, I try to have interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. In this week's episode, Birmingham attorney Frank Osmet and I had a really in-depth and informative conversation about prison reform in Alabama. Frank is an expert in this area and handles many cases along these lines. I think that you'll find this to be a most informative and educational podcast episode. Thank you for showing interest in our podcast. Have a good day. If you like this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review and subscribing will ensure that you get each podcast as they come out on a weekly basis. Thank you again. All right, guys, I want to welcome everybody to our Nomberg Law Live, which is every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific. We have interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. And I'm just, I'm so thankful that we've been doing this show for about four years now, have had so many great guests, and that includes today. Birmingham attorney and friend Frank Osmond is my guest today. Frank, good morning. Thank you for uh, having some time for us today. I think this is going to be an informative and nice conversation. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. I want to welcome like it's my first day. Now we, uh, uh, Frank is an attorney here in Birmingham, like I said, and he does some really, really important work here. And it deals with prison reform. It deals with prisoner rights and many other related things that not many lawyers do and not enough eyeballs are on the issues that are at hand. So it takes people like Frank to bring these issues to the forefront. And it's not, sometimes it's not a popular topic. Sometimes it's one, in fact, people just wish would go away. But the reality is, is that prisoners have certain rights, even though they may be incarcerated. So Frank, thank you for the work that you've been doing for so many years. I know you do other things as well, but uh, before we jump into our, our meaty topics for today, tell folks a little bit more about yourself and your family. Sure. So. Uh... I haven't really been doing the, the prisoner right work uh, very long. I mean, that really is since kind of 2018 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, early in my career, I did some civil rights work uh, defending local governments. And then as my career progressed, I kind of developed, a, would say, a specialty of sorts, um, a niche practice in advising banks uh, and financial institutions about their obligations under civil rights laws, particularly the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and the Fair Housing Act. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of part of my practice, I got really comfortable dealing with um, large data sets. Mm-hmm. So um, about 2017, 2018, uh, there was a postdoc or maybe a doctoral candidate at Columbia who got some publicity because he was trying to get some data from the Alabama Department of Corrections. And he was really struggling with that. 
and I knew some people uh, who could help with that. And so I said, would you help this guy with this? He's trying to get his data together. And they did that. And in the course of doing that, they not only put together what he wanted, but uh, an enormous amount of data that was kind of the, you know, the type stuff that I was accustomed to fooling with from a, from a quantitative standpoint. So that's what really got me involved in the prison reform issue. And then I started getting cases on that as well. Um, and basically just looking at the data and saying, okay, what sort of observations can we draw from this? Um, ultimately, a woman named Donna Smalley uh, asked me to write a letter to the governor's council on prison reform, you know, outlining some of those observations. And it kind of took off from there. Mm -hmm. And so are you actively, I know that you have recently filed a, a lawsuit, matter of fact, this week, dealing with certain issues. But before we get into that, I guess, Frank, what are the prison reform issues that are of most importance the way you see it? What are those things that are really not being addressed uh, either through public opinion or actual policies that are out there or laws? What's, what's of importance these days? Wow, that's a pretty long list. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think, um, you know, the biggest one is the number of guards. Um, you know, one of the first things that really hit me in looking at the data is that, um, you know, there's a big focus on overcrowding, and there is no denying that overcrowding is a horrible problem. I don't want to diminish that at all. But as we looked at the data over time, uh, what we saw was that frequency and incidents of violence um, increased, um, but, you know, the population in the prison system was going down. So if overcrowding was causing mm -hmm. frequency of violence to increase, you would expect, you know, to see something a little different. And what we saw was that, you know, while for the years that the data was published, the level of violence was going up, uh, the prison population was going down, but the number of guards was going down at an even quicker rate, okay? So the guard to cor the correctional officer to inmate and custody ratio was getting increasingly out of whack, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that uh, Commissioner Dunn has announced as, uh, as a goal is hiring you know, 2,200 new um, correctional officers by um, February 2022. And that, that's a goal that he announced, you know, relative to the baseline in February, I mean, sorry, September 2019. Was this in response to a lawsuit or anything particular? Well, there is a lawsuit in the Middle District, um, U.S. District Court for uh, the Middle District of Alabama, which is in Montgomery. And that case is really about mental health, but in the course of that litigation, Judge Thompson made a couple of findings that, you know, the number of correctional officers was, was just too low. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's severely impacting not only mental health, uh, but also some, um, you know, some other aspects of the system unrelated to mental health. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there, that I think part of that, and, and he's acknowledged that in his annual report, is that they're under an order to increase the number of guards. I don't think they've had a lot of success with that. 
you know, but, but that's that's a goal that they've announced. So the, that's that's a, an accurate, I mean, that's a worthy goal on their part to increase the number of correctional officers. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, I think, you know, um, there's some really serious problems with infrastructure in the system. And that's the piece that's getting all the attention. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I have a friend who has a child who's been in prison out west, and she put it to me, you know, if I had a child in prison in Alabama, why would I not want prisons, right? Because the current facilities are, are horrible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or why would I not want renovated or less crowded systems? Mm-hmm. I think the challenge is that there's a big sentiment, and I think it's a well-founded sentiment, that mm-hmm. if you build enormous prisons with incredible capacity, especially to the extent that you involve private industry, there becomes a big incentive to keep those prisons built. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of distrust of mm-hmm. a lot of the activist community about the whole let's build new prisons undertaking. Frank, let me ask you on that line, does Alabama have any, uh, what I'll call, this is my term, any modern prisons? Have any been built in in the immediate past many years? That's a great question, and I'll have to answer that by saying, depends on how you how you count them. <laughs> you know, uh, there's the Alabama Therapeutic Education Facility that's operated by GEO, mm-hmm. which is a private uh, corrections company that's in Columbiana. Uh, that's relatively new and kind of spiffy. Um, beyond that, I don't know that there are any that you would say were contemporary. I'm trying, there's so many of them. They're like, you know, 15 you know, sort of custodial facilities, and then there are 11, what I would call loosely correct, you know, community correction type. So we have at least 25 uh, incarceration facilities throughout the state? That's right. I think it's 27. And for some reason, I that number, that math isn't. I had, I had no idea we had that many. And I don't know if that's reflective on me or if I'm um, the average Joe not knowing that is that good or bad that we have that many, or do we need more in your well, opinion? You know, one of the things that's nice about having a lot of facilities is that um, it gives inmates the opportunity, at least in theory, to be closer to their families. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, as a practical matter, uh, for whatever reason, the Department of Corrections transfers people around the system a lot. Mm-hmm. And so you see a lot of people who are located some distance from their families without any reason particularly compelling them to some service. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's part of it is is the quality of the facilities. You know, do you need to renovate the current facilities? Do you need to build new facilities. I think the third piece that's not really getting much attention that's kind of near and dear to my heart, having been around the financial industry a lot, is how we pay money. Now, Alabama has some constitutional limitations on um, on debt. Okay, I mean, and I defer to the bond lawyers, so <laughs> I can't really explain all that. Right. But right. the bottom line is the state can't you know, the state can't borrow money um, except 
up very certain, you know, what you and I would call bond issues. I mean, they call warrant issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're taking on, according to what's been reported in the press, a very lengthy lease commitment um, that sounds an awful lot, you know, structurally like um, a long-term debt stability. And, um, you know, what's that going to do to the state's credit rating? Um, and then by credit rating, obviously, states don't have, like, you know, FICO scores, but, you know, they have Moody's and, and others right. that follow them. And so right. you know, the anxiety thing a lot of people have is, you know, how, how is that going to impact the state's ability to pay for things down the road? And wouldn't it be more cost-efficient to renovate some of the buildings? And that's, not having a lot of public debate on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's and these three issues. If I'm if I'm average Joe citizen, why did these things? If I don't have a family member in one of these facilities, if if this is not on my radar screen, why would, if at all, average Joe citizen care about these things? I think they, you know, several reasons um, that I will into the secular and non-secular. <laughs> um, in the secular category, I, w- I would say, you know, this thing about cost is going to impact quality of life down the road for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so if the state is operating under financial constraints that are imposed by some sort of improvement terms and conditions on this deal, uh, you're going to live with that for a long time, or mm-hmm. you're going to let a lot of people out of prison, which may be, you know, quite frankly, a judicial uh, option. I mean, California has, has done that. Well, that, that certainly right there yeah. would get Joe Citizen's attention when yeah. they start putting in the press that a lot of folks are going to be let out of incarceration. Well, and you know, I'm not I'm not saying that's a that's currently on the radar, but ultimately, right. if you you know, we have a CRIPA lawsuit, a civil, a civil rights and institutionalized persons act lawsuit mm-hmm. pending right now between US DOJ and the state of Alabama. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, those things can result in what's called a three-judge court unless the court can start letting people out. Mm-hmm. I think we're away away from that right now. I think that the challenge right now is, to, you know, in terms of why do people care? Number one, you know, is this going to be a financially ruinous deal? Number two, you know, about 80% of the people who are in um, prison have self-reported problems with drug abuse mm-hmm. you know, or, or addiction. And, you know, you say, well, if I don't have a family member or uh, if I don't have a friend who's in custody, well, you know what? You probably have family members or friends or acquaintances who have family members or friends who could be in custody. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just the prevalence of, of, of drug use, um, and you know, that's something where you know it gets near and dear to people's hearts when it starts talking about their family members or their friends. Um, I think that's a big, you know, when I was telling you about the, the woman who has the child who was in prison out west. I mean, that woman is the former CEO of two hospitals. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not just other people that it happens to. Yeah. Um, 
and I think it's, you know, it, it's just some real trickery. You know, from the non-secular uh, reasons, you know, you read Isaiah, you read, um, you know, you read others of the prophets, and uh, they're very plain-spoken about paying attention to the plight of prisoners, mm -hmm. you know, people who are unfortunate, mm -hmm. um, people who are suffering. And if you know about that, and it's within your ability to do something, and you don't do something, then that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a big, compelling reason. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Guys, we're talking with Birmingham attorney Frank Osmond. We're talking about prison reform. And Frank is just giving us a an overview of some of the issues, not all of the issues, there's certainly many, but some of the issues as he sees them as current problems in the prison system. And Frank, let me ask you, let's step back from Alabama. Uh, do you have an opinion or have you made an observation? How does our state compare to other states, either in the South or around the country when it comes to these issues that you're bringing up? Great question. You know, there's a There's certainly some states that are doing things that are very proactive and that seem to be working mm -hmm. uh, that we're not doing. And one is um, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. you know, Rhode Island, a big problem with prisons is with people who are addicted to opiates. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, number one, you know, that um, substance use disorder result in them either going to prison because of basically glorified uh, possession charges or sometimes distribution charges. Sometimes mm -hmm. that disorder will lead them to uh, commit other crimes that cause them to be in prison. Mm -hmm. Once they get there, guess what? They're drugs in prison. Okay? Um, we'll leave aside how those drugs get there, but they're there. Right. And so, you know, how do you help people who are in prison who want to uh, overcome that disorder. Mm -hmm. Well, if they were in the free world, we know that the most effective way for many of those people to overcome the problem is what's called medicine-assisted therapy um, and um, drug counseling, okay? So if you were in the free world and you were addicted to opioids, you know, you were addicted to heroin or oxycodone or whatever it is, mm -hmm. uh, you would break that addiction uh, probably using medicine-assisted therapy, which would involve you taking things like naproxen, the supplicate, Vivitrol, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and then you would need counseling. And it takes probably a couple of years for that to happen. Well, you look at a state like Rhode Island, they have MAT, medicine-assisted therapy, and counseling for um, prisoners who are actually in the prison system. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it has been very effective. And if you talk to the warden up there, she said, you know, look, I'm an old school CEO started at the ground level. They came to me and said, let's do MAT and, and drug therapy in prison. And I said, no way. She said, now I'm a big advocate of it because it's worked and it really has been very effective. We're not doing much like that. We have a couple of programs, um, you know, for people in custody. Um, there are challenges with those programs. I don't know that they're designed even to manage uh, effective long 
one of the things that we have going on is, um, which I'm helping a guy named Rod Graham with, uh, is an adversary proceeding in the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, mm -hmm. where we're asking the bankruptcy court, uh, please, you know, set aside some money to subsidize mm -hmm. um, drug counseling for those prisoners uh, who can't have MAT and who are in custody. Obviously, they have difficulty filing claims in that bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So maybe that'll something will come out on that. Uh, the other thing is education. Um, you know, men in Alabama who have access to education sometimes get a pretty doggone good education. Mm -hmm. So there is a uh, reentry program here in Birmingham called Shepherd's Fold uh, Ministries. Um, you go out there, you talk to those guys. A lot of them have great, you know, real-world work skills in you know, carpentry, electricity, or electrician, um, etc. A lot of them don't. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that everybody does, but there is some opportunity for some people. In contrast, if you looked at what's available to the women, um, it, it's not the same level and as a result when they get out and they go into a supervised release program I think it's very difficult to employ those women one of the things that's going on there's a guy named Franklin Tate who is a lead trustee for Knoxville College Knoxville is the Presbyterian HBCU for Tennessee um, in his alma mater of um, you know, Joseph Mallory and a lot of other people um they now provide online education for um, prisoners in East Tennessee, and I think also in West Tennessee. And, what, and they what, have a curriculum that is very focused on that. Go ahead. What, what percentage, if you know, of those eligible for that education actually take part in it? Is it a decent uh, I, percentage? I, I, um, in terms of Alabama, the people who are eligible for the education and you know who take part in it, I think you have to break that down into two questions. Mm -hmm. right? One is um, what percentage, you know, to what percentage is that educational opportunity offered, mm -hmm. right? And then among those to whom it's offered, how many take advantage of it? Right. And I think it's a very low percentage of, you know, prisoners have that opportunity offered to them. Okay. Whereas, you know, among those that have the opportunity, I think it's a very high percentage of participation. And one of the things that depends on the level of custody, depends on sure. the a lot of men are innocent prisoners, you know, obstruct a lot of this. But, Whereas in Tennessee, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'd have to defer to Franklin, um, who lives here in, in Birmingham, but on on the numbers there. But I think they've gotten a really great reception to that program. Well, let me uh, pause you. Go back talking about the opioid issue. One of the things that you know in my world, in the work comp world, Social Security disability world. It's long been known, and you probably know this as well, there are pockets of our state 
that have some of the highest percentages of opioid abuse in the country. Right. In fact, I think one or two counties may even lead the country per capita. Right. So I'm sure none of that is helpful at all, quite hurtful uh, to the issues that you're dealing with about the addiction and how prisoners are just not able to shake free. But along those same lines, I had a question when you were mentioning Rhode Island and the program that they have, the MAT. Do you think, maybe you've heard of this, I, I don't know, it just kind of struck me. Kind of like I've read in, in the past where people owe lar who owe large debts to the mafia or to bad guys will intentionally get themselves thrown into jail or prison in hopes that that's a safe haven for them. Here, my, my, my question to you is, do you think that there are prisoners, say in Rhode Island, who know of this program, who want to get the help, may do something to intentionally get themselves incarcerated, so it might make them eligible uh, for that MAT, the medical assistance uh, treatment? Does that make sense? I, I'm kind well, of I guess the question is, um, you know, would people you know, commit a crime in order to take advantage of uh, MAT or counseling in order to, um, you know, overcome their, their problems. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, would they do that in Rhode Island? I don't know. Nobody in their right mind would do that. Yeah, I didn't think that that would be that, that would not something be to consider here. I will say, you know, I mean, there is a, um, you know, you're going back to the, you know, the percentages of incarceration and opioid use disorder. One of the things that we looked at, you know, some of the counties, well, the, the counties that comprise the fourth congressional district, mm -hmm. okay, Robert Adderholtz's. Mm -hmm. Think about that. It kind of runs east to west, mm -hmm. kind of across the mm -hmm. kind of bottom half of the northern third of the state. Um, Walker, Northern Tuscaloosa, Etowah. Mm -hmm. That um, that district, together with the fourth district, which is really around Mobile, had the highest per capita opioid prescription rate of any congressional district, any two congressional districts in the country. It's enormous. Uh, a lot of it, of course, is concentrated in one. Right. right. Um, but what's fascinating about it is the fourth congressional district. So those two are really about neck and neck in terms of per capita opioid prescription. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting about it is the fourth district incarcerates people at roughly twice the rate as the first district. Wow. Yeah, so I think these things are kind of complicated, you know, in terms of um, what's the cause and effect of this thing. Yeah, well, this yeah. I got off on that tangent. No, it's it's all all of this, and it just shows to the bigger issue here. Obviously, in thirty minutes, we can't cover nearly as much as should be covered. We're just hitting some highlights, if you will, uh, with Birmingham attorney Frank Osmond. Uh, Frank, before we get you out of here, and we've got a couple of minutes left, and I sure appreciate you sharing your insight. 
let's talk about the lawsuit that you filed this week. Tell us a little bit about it and, and why it's an important case that needs to be known about. Well, you know, I, when I said I was going to, to, to do this show with you, I did not know I was going to be out. But basically, it's a lawsuit brought on behalf of a prisoner um, against the governor, uh, the Board of Pardons and Paroles, mm -hmm. and um, you know, the Bureau of Pardons and Paroles and others. And basically, the problem, you know, is that we have a constitutional amendment that says pardons and paroles is a function that belongs to the legislature. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's been around a long time. And we also, in Alabama, have a totally over-the-top um, you know, separation of powers clause. I mean, it's section 43, I think, 42. Read it. I mean, it really gills the lily, okay? Well, in 2019, the Alabama legislature gave the governor the right to appoint the, the director of the Bureau of Pardons and Paroles. In other words, the legislature purported to give the governor um, you know, a big piece of the mm -hmm. whole governance of pardons and paroles. And so this lawsuit is saying, look, that, that violates the separation of powers clause. And it, it's not a purely technical issue because since that happened, right, um, things have not been very productive for the Board of Pardons and Paroles. And that mm -hmm. may not be the fault of the board members. I mean, they, they may, you know, they, they may be somebody else's fault. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that the lawsuit challenges is Governor Ivey's proclamation prohibiting, basically prohibiting uh, the board from having public meetings. You can't grant parole except in a public meeting, right? <laughs> and so if you have this proclamation that all but eliminates the possibility of having a, a public meeting, uh, that doesn't look bad. It doesn't look good, and it looks especially bad when it has the effect of inflating the prison population mm -hmm. while we're having these negotiations over how big should our new prisons be, right? Right. It just, it seems like things are being done with doors being closed, and not enough people know about not enough things that are being considered or going on and then is it too, then it's too late because then decisions have been made. Uh, is, is that, I know that's a, a terrible way to look at it, but is that kind of fair? But I'm the ultimate retail thinker. I have no big concepts and no big ideas, okay? And to me, this is about one woman, mm -hmm. okay? And it is a woman uh, who I think if the Board of Pardons and Paroles had been able to have a public meeting, had, had really been functioning, you know, well with their own director, et cetera, and so forth. By the way, the, the director was in place then at the time for uh, applications, not the same guy as doing now. Mm -hmm. But if the whole thing had been operating well, I think there's no doubt that they would have given a really hard look and serious consideration to giving this woman a parole. I mean, she's been an exemplary prisoner for decades. I mean, she had, she had letters of support from the state. It does have bigger policy issues. Mm -hmm. It does kind of have other big policy implications. And I'll let the big policy people kind of sort all that out. <laughs> it's not me. 
Well, Frank, I hope you keep filing these lawsuits. I hope you keep getting people's attention and making a difference for those who need it. So thank you for sharing a little bit about prison reform and what's going on in the state of Alabama these days. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. And guys, as we try to do, we try to bring you conversations with people in their areas of expertise. And Frank certainly fits that bill. And I'm proud to call him friend. And I'm so glad he had some time for us today. As we do each Tuesday, 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific for about 30 minutes or so, Nomberg Law Live. And we'll come back to you again next week. Hope you guys have a safe, safe week. Take care. Thanks, bud.